going to experience the hell we're going through. I thought, why not? I'll uh, just so, yeah, yeah. This is the 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 auto version. This is Lebanon Tokyo Drift. Exactly. <laughs> I, I pride myself with professional microphones and a camera and a setup. Instead, I'm doing this in my car. Anyway, we do what we can. My 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 laptop is old and uh, doesn't have the greatest video. Anyway, um, I just want to let you know um, because we're three people on a Zoom, they have a time limit, so it's gonna like log out in like 40 minutes and then we'll have to like no if we're problem. going longer than that and then we'll have to like restart it of course so and hope maybe by then it'll be back on and we can yeah. sit upstairs have a bit of a back and forth sure so anyway we are recording now and uh so welcome everyone back to another um episode of a podcast that we call Khalidia because it's two guys named Khalid, and that's how we, uh, um, you know, decided to name it. We have a special guest today, Ronnie. Ronnie, uh, uh, we, um, I met you like eleven years ago when I was living in Beirut, um, and you were doing the Walk Beirut. Uh, do you still do the Walk Beirut tours? You know, I haven't given the tour since late 2019 okay. that was the last time i did it and for many reasons one of which is the country has been through so much since october 2019 things got very tricky and shortly after that coronavirus made it impossible yeah. to have big groups joining and since then things have been taking a downward spiral so it's not i don't think it's the right time to try to give a, uh, a fair interpretation to the city, which I tried to do in the years before. So I'm going to wait a bit before doing it again. Well, before I go, I, I, I want to continue introducing you, but I also wanted you to introduce you to uh, Khalid Serafi, who is my... Um, yeah, I'm like sitting uh, here like, uh, let me... I'm waiting for this, the introduction. This is, this is, this is, this is my uh, compadre in, in this... Uh, uh, podcast uh we were uh uh you know uh, students together in the master's program at ucla and we've been you know this is our what seventh episode now i think it's uh, episode eight episode, is it eight? I think it's okay. seven or eight i'm not sure yeah but yeah it's been... nice to meet you it's a pleasure Khaled. well i'm glad i assumed it had something to do with the name I didn't know there were two, so that's uh, yeah. it's good to know how these things happen. I, I assumed it was the other Khaled, it turns out. It's, yeah, it's nice to have a story behind the name, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. So Khaledin. So, um, yeah, he was part of our whole cohort, along with Golin, you you know, who you remember that uh, I was living with in, in Beirut. Um, yes. But yeah, your your um, your walking tours were great, and I learned a lot. I still remember many of the stories. Um, you know, it was very it, it was great because it was so historical that you would take us to different spots in in Beirut, and like you know, between like Roman baths and the fact that Hamra was named after the red dirt, <laughs> and, and 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 also methods of that. Uh, were used to uh, counterfeit American dollars. Yeah, very good memory. I remember the stories that you told. 
So yeah, it's nice to talk to you. It's been a long time and you're looking good. I wish I was looking good. You're very you're a very decent liar. I'm fat. <laughs> I've I've expired and you're seeing me in a car trying to charge a phone <laughs> to make this happen. I'm in no good shape, but I appreciate it. You look good too. I get I I'll think you've aged better. You want. I think you've aged better than I have in the last 11 I years. Don't know. I don't know. <laughs> um but yeah, we wanted to have you on and talk about um, you know, um what what it it is that's happening in lebanon and maybe start with uh a little background like the last few years and then get maybe a a little bit more of a personal aspect but like for those who don't know like where you know where the the protests about the economy started before the you know this explosion and all of that like maybe you know, what's what's up in Lebanon? Sure. So just to give you some context, and now I know how to work this properly, I'm going to open my car window and I will show you. So that's where I live. Mm -hmm. The entire building's facade was destroyed from the port blast that happened. If you can see just down the street behind those trees is a, is a section of the new port. So I live in, in a neighborhood called Madam Khayel, which was impacted uh, tremendously by the port blast. And the reason it's I'm very starting close to the port. Way, oh, I mean, the port is really right here. And actually that's the view from my, from my uh, window when I'm upstairs. So the reason I'm starting it off in a very, in a, in a somewhat somber note is because next week will be the one year anniversary of, of the port blast. And uh, things have been rapidly deteriorating not just since the port blast last year, but as you said, Khaled, earlier, uh, the last maybe, the last two years have seen a very, very devastating toll to this country uh, for a number of things that have happened, one of which is economics, which you hinted at earlier. Uh, I think when you visited, which by the way, you said 11 years, time goes by very yeah. quickly. That was crazy. Yeah, quickly. it was 2010, it feels like yesterday. So the money that you, the money that you used 11 years ago was worth roughly the same amount up until almost two years ago. Uh, it was at 1,500 lira to the dollar, which was a more or less a fixed rate, a managed float that was in place. Uh, just a few days ago, it was at 25,000 lira to the dollar. So it lost over 90% of its value. So if you, if you can imagine having money in your wallet that disappears in almost all of its value very quickly, that's become a reality here. The political situation is terrible. Uh, there has been no government. There's only been a caretaker government for a year. There's been no functioning government for, for, for a year, if not longer. Uh, that's been paralysis. And add to that, I mean, every country has had a tough time in 2020, 2021 with coronavirus. It took its toll here. Uh, there's a resurgent wave of this Delta deadly version. Mm -hmm. So the, the numbers have gone up significantly in the last few days. There's talk of a potential shutdown once again, lockdown. Mm -hmm. But that's the minor side. The major is that the country is uh, ungovernable. And the port blast is not a normal, it's not a 
the term blast, I think, does not does not define it correctly. And I apologize if I'm fading with the sunset. I will turn on a light when needed. Just yeah, it looks like you're all right. I'm all right. Okay. We can see you just fine. Okay, good. Uh, the the port blast is not a blast. It's the largest non-nuclear explosion in modern history. No, so, it was insane. I saw yeah, the video. It's insane. Yeah, and it's an, I mean, ammonium nitrate, when in small amounts used for fertilizer is one thing. Mm. There was 2,700 tons of it parked in the port for nearly seven years. Uh, Most of it, not all of it, some of it was siphoned off. Most of it uh, is now, you know, part of Beirut. I mean, it's, we, we all got impacted by it. And, uh, to, I, yeah, to, to, I, it's to, been a very, to, very, very da- bad time. Yeah, but to, I mean, to to sort of explain that a little bit deeper, like there, it there were these tons of um, ammonium nitrate that was stored at the port. Um, what from what I've read, it was it was kind of improperly improperly stored, and it was stored next to something that it was fireworks or something that. You know, flammable materials next door, and the fire started next door, and that exploded the the ammonium nitrate. That's what I read. There were hazardous. There was hazardous material in the same warehouse, which included fireworks, and included uh, small small scale weaponry, things that are things that could catch on fire if, if heated to a certain degree, which is what happened. And yes, that those smaller explosions led to a blast prior to the main blast. So there mm-hmm. were there, there was a lot of hazardous material in that warehouse. But the ammonium nitrate was the was the reason why this this whole thing happened. Do you have a do you have a concept of uh, or do you have a theory? Because I feel like there there have been different um, stories told about that stock of ammonium nitrate. Um, one one story that I read was that it was uh, sort of accidentally or uh, misshipped or something like that. Do you do you have a concept of uh, you know some group or you know part of the Lebanese government or you know or some group in Lebanon that was deliberately you know housing that? No, the facts have been delivered. There's a cargo ship with Syrian businessmen ties with the Syrian regime, and it was parked at Beirut's port, almost certainly at this point for warlike reasons, not fertilizer. Um, So those investigations have been done. More recently, there's a, uh, I think it's a French newspaper, Figaro, if I'm not mistaken, that had an in-depth discussion on on the port blast. the conduits in Lebanon, one assumes that it's allies of the Syrian regime. It would be a very unusual situation if it was opponents of the re- That's one obvious conclusion, and that's why uh, that could point to the reason why we have not had an investigation. Uh, this type of enormous explosion requires something that is done in an international, uh, to, to international standards, not a sloppy domestic patching up investigation, which is what would happen 
F1 yeah, I heard that the other here. day there was a, a top general, a top Lebanese general who uh, was basically prevented from, or he was he was given immunity from from testifying about this. There's been discussion for many, many. I mean, going back now since the blast on how to remove immunity from a number mm. of people. These are politicians. These are intelligence officials. This is actually, if I'm not mistaken, you're referring to the head of general security, which yes, was a few weeks yes. ago. Yes. Uh, these, these discussions come and go. No immunity has been lifted as of yet. And actually, uh, these are actually ongoing discussions even today. The former prime minister, Saad Hariri, who was in a caretaker capacity for nine months, also now just saying that we should lift, immu lift immunity, but it's a constant discussion. It hasn't uh, done, hasn't gone anywhere. Well, I think that 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 is emblematic of what's going on in the country politically, just on a grander scale. Maybe we can we can talk a little bit about uh, how things came to where they are. Uh, I know, obviously, this is like we're not we want to get too far back into the history, but you know, just to give uh, our our listeners some some context. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean I, I, you you were in you were in Lebanon more recently than I was doing uh, work with um, Syrian refugees. Yeah, it was 2017, so it's it was a while, like not too long ago, but. You know, yeah. before any of all this, like all this stuff that, like the recent events had happened. Yeah. This is the question. If you ask a number of Lebanese, you'll get a number of answers. And I think the easiest way to approach this from a subjective view is to focus in on the state's erosion for over half a century. And it's a word that is used here I don't think it catches enough traction, but it's something fundamental, which is that Lebanon lost its sovereignty long ago, going back to 1970. This country has been a battlefield for regional problems. Now that is not the only problem that has impacted Lebanon, but that is a structural problem. And clearly in 2020, we're still paying a price for being part of a regional war. This time around, we're a weapons depot or a regime that is fighting for its survival next door. But those problems are old, it's a structural problem. So that I think is the fundamental background uh, problem. Up front, and, and at least recent years, it has been an economic situation that has its ties to the Syrian conflict next door. Lebanon did pay an economic price for having that conflict seep into Lebanon. Uh, it's also pure corruption. Lebanon is famous for its corruption levels, and that has been, thankfully, it's been addressed vocally, repeatedly by protesters in this country, and it's being taken seriously, whether it's the IMF or the World Bank or even sanctions, which have been applied on Lebanese officials due to corruption, not due to geopolitics per se, not, not the usual sanctioning that we hear, it's actual corruption whether it's the Magnitsky Act, which is fairly new, or even taking an aggressive tone against corruption in Lebanon, which is good. Uh, add to that, the Lebanese post-war system, and when I say post-war, I mean post-civil war, mm -hmm. it functioned 
in a way that doesn't lend itself well to a post-Civil War situation. Meaning that many of the usual suspects are still in power. There is one militia, Hezbollah, that has survived 31 years of a post-war environment and not just survived, it grew. And it grew to the point that it's a regional army. It's not a Lebanese local militia. So there's a situation there that's absurd for a post-war uh, country trying to, trying to rebuild itself. And more and more very, I mean, it's really the last few months is that the ungovernable situation has taken its toll. So institutions don't work. The state effectively collapsed. Now I'll give you an example. I mean, electricity is the most obvious one. There's no electricity. In the capital city, Beirut, if you're lucky, you get four hours of electricity now. Only so you have four. generators, only four. I mean, uh, I have even even before this this giant explosion, uh, you know, when in two thousand ten, the electricity would go out for at least an hour per day. Oh, it was going out for at least three hours per day uh, after the civil war ended. That was a good day if you got twenty one hours of electricity. <laughs> yeah, but now it's it's reached the point that generators have replaced power plants. So I mean, it's just a constant buzzing and humming of generators. So there's that side to the story that the state doesn't work. Uh, water supplies have reached critical levels. You get pumps to pump your water tanks. Uh, pharmacies don't have where? private, either it's private companies that mostly do it and they're going to run out at some point too. But it's, it's the generators, the water supply, the water plants require generators. Uh, even internet outages have become frequent. Our local internet providers need to have generators running to actually power. And if you don't have power, you can't supply internet. And very recently is something very serious. There's no medicine. Uh, if you want basic medicine, and sorry for this is sort of vulgar, uh, vulgar example, but diarrhea, I needed some anti-diarrhea medicine out of stock. You can't get something basic. I mean, emodium, something that you take for granted yeah. or anything. Uh, paracetamol is, is decreasing in, in supplies as well. So there's a serious uh, societal breakdown happening. Add to that the currency fluctuation, which has killed the economy. So there's, we had, a, uh, we had a, an episode few days ago about Syria and the current situation in Syria. And, you know, obviously Syria and Lebanon are very, and have been very much interconnected politically and economically in <clears throat> very detrimental ways for, for Lebanon, for sure. Um, but one of the things that, you know, we talked about was on a more grand scale was looking at how Politically, when Syria became was like a vassal state of, of Iran, and we've seen the same thing with, with Iraq, we've seen the same thing with, with uh, this dominance, this political dominance that Hezbollah has uh, in Lebanon. <clears throat> we also see with that, that with that comes a lot of uh, failure when it comes to 
state functioning and corruption and militias popping up. At least in, in Lebanon, there's only one, but you know, in, in Syria, Iraq, uh, you see you see similar patterns. And and so I wanted to get an idea from you also. I mean, yes, different people in Lebanon may have different subjective opinions, of course, based on their their political backgrounds or what have you. But it seems also that with the last couple of years, with the protests, with this breakdown of government, you're seeing a coalescing of, of sorts, uh, of, especially of the youth in Lebanon. I'm not going to say all, but you know, you, it's it's becoming more more apparent that there is this recognition that there is this this problem, this political problem, and and this this entity Hezbollah is its loyalty isn't to Lebanon, it's to Iran, and so and it's everything it does is for its own purposes and for Iran's purposes. So. I wanted to get your your opinions and thoughts on that too, especially with like the 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 sense of what what people are are feeling on the street when it comes to that. You've asked this question in such an eloquent way, and it's a great thing when a fellow podcaster is given all the terrain necessary to say the story as it is without loose ends. So I appreciate the way you framed the question. And it resonates. It resonates thoroughly. Uh, and it's quite obvious that you're in tune with what's happening, not just in Lebanon, but the region. I completely agree. This is a shared story. It has ripple effects. Last year, it wasn't just Lebanese protesting. The Iraqis were protesting in full force. A violent crackdown on those protests in comparison to what happened in Lebanon. Many Iraqis killed, challenging a geopolitical quagmire. And Iran, in the last few days, but not just the last few days, regularly, in the last at least 11, 12 years, has Iranians are on the street demanding change. And I think it's just a few days ago, maybe just over the weekend, uh, slogans coming out from Tehran saying, no to Lebanon, no to Gaza, which means implicitly stop funding groups that are hurting Iran's economy. It may not be for the same reason that we protest here, but it lines up geopolitically. So there is a structural paradigm that is under threat by inhabitants, local inhabitants, that may not express their, the, may not express their desires in those ways. It may not be directly anti-Iran. You won't see necessarily anti-Iranian slogans or the flag itself being brought up, but it's economic. And when it's economic dignity is at stake, when there's starvation, people will challenge any authority. And I think that has happened. These countries are suffering to the point that even a very, very long imposed uh, disorder through Iran's proxies, primarily Hezbollah, but others as well, is eroding. Now, I don't think it will collapse in the near future. Those investments are decades old, uh, but the, the grip has, has weakened. And you see an appetite, even among previous allies to that structure, you see an appetite for change. This could be, for example, just a small but important example. And I'm sorry to use these 
quasi-Orientalist ways of describing, but I don't know any better way to do this. Hezbollah strongholds, whatever that means. Parts of Lebanon where there is a Hezbollah security infrastructure, at least. You saw protests there. Now, they may not be anti-Hezbollah in nature, but they're anti the larger picture. So Hezbollah's rule does come up. Whether or not they're crushed, whether or not that's intimidated, whether or not protesters are forced home is separate. The, the demands haven't changed. So there is a threat, at least, to this regional disorder that Lebanon is clearly a part of, but as is Syria, as is Iraq, to a lesser degree, and perhaps a more uh, tragic degree, Yemen as well, and Gaza. Hamas is part of the story too. And the populations have suffered too long. And I think this is why you see this erosion at a societal level having geopolitical implications. So you can't just buy, you can't buy time. People have reached their limit. On a technical note, I think it'd be a good time to, if you can turn on the light in your car. <laughs> am I in the dark? You're a little bit in the dark. That there I am. We, we want to be able to see your lovely face. I really apologize for this. <laughs> well, I mean, hopefully no, some electricity. No, no, don't worry. Soon. Don't worry yeah. about it. We, we, uh, we, we understand and we, we want our listeners to really know what's you know, I mean, you're, you're on the on? Like this is the, the, it's the, you're on the front lines. I'm so. on the front line of uh, of everything that's wrong. Of this <laughs> regional like disaster. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, I think the the you know, I mean, the whole region is in kind of a disaster, you know, and to have, I mean, the the war with with Yemen has been horrific. The war in Syria has been horrific. Egypt is a, is a total crackdown police state. Um, you know, I mean, like from from 2011 to now, 2011, you know, for me, I thought it was a very uh, hopeful moment that you know, people were, were demanding their rights and saying we've had enough of these corrupt governments we've had enough of the corruption we've had enough of like these military states that came about through coup d'etats and we want governments that represent us and serve our needs where we have enough like even you know in the 90s when egypt was doing relatively well the electricity and water would be shut off randomly at any time you never know when and you know the infrastructure is just like there is no investment in infrastructure and someone's always making money off of all of that all of the resources and people are making money and at the same time the people don't have reliable power they don't have reliable water and it that it's not that the state doesn't have the money to pay for it it's that the wrong people are taking the money. That's my impression. I mean, you're probably so much better versed in what's been happening in Egypt than I'll ever be. And I won't even try to overstep here. I will, I will maybe offer a, a step back. And sure. I think it's, there's a shared problem in this entire region. 
which is political violence dictates everything. There is no case in this part of the world where democracy is allowed to do its job, which is bad ideas are voted out, or if they're voted in, they're tested to make sure they're bad and then they're thrown out. Good ideas hopefully win more than bad and enough incentment for minorities to feel secure. That, that to me seems reasonable. Uh, some, some of these countries have facades of it. Maybe Lebanon is one example where there's this veneer of democracy, yet that veneer is equally destroyed when it comes to violence. And when I say violence, I don't mean um, crime in that people are criminals towards each other. I mean, political violence in that a regime or a militia can kill ideas. It's not killing, it's not civil war-like scenario. It's actually murder. Egypt is full of this. Iraq is full of it. Syria is full of it. Lebanon has had its fair share. And when it's not direct violence, even though this has happened on occasion, even in Tunisia, it's a tolerated situation where the state trumps the system in a way that's so unhealthy to society. So Tunisia, the last few days, it seems like a fait accompli that even Tunisia, that shining star of the Arab Spring, those expectations have their own limits where political violence can and still does take charge of the story. So I think that is the sad conclusion of the Arab Spring, which is there was nothing to prevent murder and intimidation and violence from winning. This did not happen in other parts of the world nearly as much, whether it's Eastern Europe and post-1989, which had enough incentive to make do without that stuff, or even South America, Latin America, which found its way, and most parts of the world that have found their way. I mean, whether it's Southeast Asia, we're now, uh, <laughs> the most difficult and challenged part of the world, but I think violence is the story. Well, if you if you were able to if you're able to allow for the exchange of ideas without that threat, I think all these countries would be in a far better place in every single way possible. I mean, I would I would say that um, sub-Saharan Africa is. Um, like, in a similar situation to the Middle East, um, in terms of irascible conflicts that just you know never end, and um, I would. I'll, I'll interject one one last thing before I start to interrupt. I mean, Syria, whatever you want to call that conflict, war, revolution, whatever. Yeah. The fact is, millions of Syrians are displaced. Mm. Perhaps hundreds of thousands are murdered and half of Lebanon is potentially either Syrian refugees or Palestinian refugees that accepted as part of the story is that you take it for what it is that we live in this part of the world that has permanent scarring when you can't challenge your leadership peacefully and now we have one of the most horrendous atrocious leaders who survived so much, still running Syria, and still capable of running Syria. That says it all. 
it almost it says that if you do try still even now to try to win the right way overwhelming likelihood you'll get killed while you're trying sure i will say one thing about sub-saharan africa just really quick is that obviously it's a giant like region so you know it it depends on like country by country but as a whole i would say that if we're talking economically there are some cases in sub-saharan africa where countries are slowly inching forward and coming together at least economically people talk about this future that africa has that it seems that that part of the world has even surpassed the middle east like the, the middle east is is so far behind and has just become in such a huge mess uh yeah no, I mean, I, I, I don't think you're wrong there. I think I think there there is more of a light at the end of the tunnel politically for a lot of countries in sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but I would say, I mean, and, you know, Africa and the Middle East have so many resources, natural resources and sources of wealth that could be utilized to serve the populations. Um, so... I think the question to be asked, and it's a question that's usually answered in a very racist kind of a way, is why is it that um, these regions aren't prosperous, like, you know, European countries that are, you know, uh, that have far less resources, but are actually um, prosperous. I think, you know, there's usually a very racist answer to that. And um, would you like to comment on that? I, I don't know. Well, no, I don't know what the racist reference is, but I'll say it in a different way. The further back in time you go in this part of the world, the richer it is in everything. Yeah. The richer it is in, in sorry to use this word, but culture is a very cosmopolitan part of the world. It once was among the most cosmopolitan. And this is real, real cosmopolitanism, not the flimsy type that people talk about. It's real. You have diversity of mm -hmm. everything. And languages are spoken. Fundamentalists live next to secularists. And Europeans come to this part of the world to work. And add to that a real healthy exchange of communities that don't always see eye to eye, but live side by side. Mm -hmm. And an intersection that you want, this is a, there's a reason for it, and it makes sense geographically and historically. So there's a mosaic that's magnificent, and it's all but gone today. And I think what you're, I, I, I know where the question's going. I, there are parts of this region that are very rich, whether it's the UAE or Saudi Arabia, or Kuwait, Qatar, or even for that matter, Iran that have resources, have money to spend, but that's an abnormal uh, wealth of oil and, and oil money that doesn't exist in other parts of the world, clearly doesn't exist in Lebanon. All the, bank, all the banks that once operated here, the 90 banks that were once here, their investors are gone. The money and the talent, the education, we had the most impressive university in this part of the world, 
American University of Beirut ranks lower and lower every year, almost shut down last year. This is a unfortunate flight to oil producing countries, but even then, whether it's the UAE with its very strange setup in Dubai and Abu Dhabi, or whether it's Saudi Arabia, which with its vicious form of theocracy, or even for that matter, Iran, which spends almost all of its money on regional war, that money is not spent the right way. Yeah. So we have wealth, but it chased oil. The real wealth, the real richness of this part of the world is gone. I mean, these cities don't look or feel or even, they're not, they're not the same. I mean, Alexandria and Egypt, mm. Beirut and Lebanon, uh, sorry to include Turkey here, but I'll include it. Smyrna and Izmir, these places are not what they used to be. And uh, that's a 20th century story, except Beirut somehow, even after civil war, even after repeated invasion, Israeli invasion or Syrian invasion and occupation, uh, up until the port blast, even with economic, economic uh, dysfunction, we still prided ourselves as being the last bastion which is why many people would flock here. I'm, I'm going to include you, Khalid. You didn't have to be here, but you chose to be here. I'm guessing you wanted to come here because there's an enchantment to visiting this, this city. That's gone. And that's, that's a very sad ending to this city because it, it had that. And people use this word repeatedly, resilience. That's what they were talking about. It was a resilient city, but it doesn't feel that way anymore. So I think, unfortunately, Lebanon has joined the club. Well, to get into a little bit of history, if I may, since you know we, you were you you brought up the history so beautifully, and it and I think it's important for people to know that we have a rich history, and that you know this is something that we we should know and fall back on to know also what our future may look like as well. Uh, in terms of resources, yes, in terms of like what we're calling like hard resources, let's say oil and gas, if we're talking about the Gulf states or Iran, what have you, sure. But if we go back in time and we look at the, let's say the Levant area, or Lebanon, Syria, Palestine, those areas that have not had were not rich in in resource natural resources, but they were rich in people. Like the people were like it, it's the human resources I think that made that area shine. In that, if you didn't have the wealth of other parts of the world, you had commerce, you had mm -hmm. trade, you had uh, the exchange of of as you put it cultures the intermixing of cultures and where all these different civilizations met would produce something beautiful and, and it did. And so unfortunately with war, uh, as we, we see now and we've seen in the past, people flee and that creates a brain drain in, in those areas and it's, it's a huge loss. However, if we also look at that, the history of our region it's survived a lot of war and a lot of conflict, a lot of invasions, and somehow 
it comes back at some point. People are able to eventually come together and make something out of what, like what remained. And so, you know, uh, that might, I don't know how long that might take, if that might, if that it'll be in our lifetimes or not, but, but we, we, for people who think that the, this region is just utter devastation and chaos and destruction, and it's always been that way, they should know that this is, that's not the case. Right? And that there is, the, the people have the capacity. I know that when there's, I mean, my family's Syrian. I, I grew up in Syria and I've, I heard the same thing about Lebanon as well after, after the civil war. When, when you have a conflict like that, you have a lot of people who, who become expats or refugees who flee, but they, they have so much desire to come back. And when things settle down, a lot of them do and they do good things. I mean, you want the right sort of environment, you want the right uh, political system to accommodate that, of course. That, that, is, that comes before anything else. Uh, and I think that was where, as you mentioned, there was a, the, there was a big mistake in the post-Civil War period in Lebanon. I completely agree. And I think Syria is the most striking example where a population is forced into something that is so miserable, where half the population is displaced or is out of the country, where too many decent people are killed, challenging the worst form of autocracy. And when they are given that chance today to go home, they're going home to something that did the same thing. It's a very difficult decision. Can you return when things have gotten worse and the same crowd is still ruling? I think that is an ultimate red line for the decent people that fled but should come back because who would want to? If you're out and those people are still around, you don't want to return. This is what makes our part of the world, I think, strikingly different. I'll give you an example. Uh, hundreds of thousands of Bosnians were forced to flee, whether it's Sarajevo or Mostar or anywhere in Bosnia. Many Croatians, many Serbians too, forced out. They may not be coming back to the version that they dreamed of. It may not be the most decent form of accountability. It may not be the most peaceful situation, but they're returning, and this is 25 years later, they're returning, whether it's in Germany or in America or Australia, to a country that they believe in and one that is getting better and better. Whether it's through EU accession, whether it's through economic prosperity, or whether it's even through the guarantee that those murderers were held to account at least up to a point. This could be uh, Radko Mladic or Karadzic, paramilitary leaders responsible for genocide. Even when their posters are put up now, they're taken down. So there's, a, there's an assurance that there's no impunity. This word, I think we don't even consider it in this part of the world. Take it as it is. Impunity is part of the story, which it shouldn't be. So there's no paying a price for being a criminal in this part of the world. I think if one day we have that, if these types of criminals are held to account at least to a point, 
I think you would see the description that you that you laid out, which is why would you want to be in California when you're from one of the most beautiful countries in the world? Why would the other Khaled want to be in, is it Los Angeles where you guys are? Yeah, yeah I'm guessing. Yeah. Okay, I mean, Los Angeles, fine. Traffic, yeah, it's terrible in Cairo too, but Ka Cairo, not too long ago, would trounce Los Angeles. And that's oh, not that's the case true. right now. I mean, yeah. pre-1980s, we, 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 pre like, you know what I mean? Like exactly. The, 90, the 80s and 90s trashed um, Cairo. And part of it was neoliberal um, reforms to the economy that brought in like foreign investors that basically just enriched a small amount of the population and kind of track. There's a lot of stuff to talk, you know, in terms of like, the, like how populations, you know. Um, but it's so bad, Khaled, it's so bad that your reference point is the 1980s, which are the good days, which are still pretty bad compared to yeah. the shining star Cairo once was. Yeah, in the so 1960s, that, you know. Yeah, so, it was so, a, but um, this is something that I think it makes no sense why those that love this part of the world the most are not here. But yeah. if, you, if you put the word immu uh, impunity in there, well, meaning there's no yeah. accountability, we'll you'd see. want to be in a, yeah, sorry. Well, I mean, like, it's very interesting that you brought up Serbia and the Bosnian conflict because the Serbian um, uh, military leaders are some of the only people that have actually been convicted in the international uh, court ever. You know, like no one, you know, the, in, the international law doesn't, like it, it's never it's very hard to prosecute and Serbians are some of the only people where they actually successfully prosecuted some of these people. I think and that I was think like a, that an up. example of like, you know, let's, let's give some sort of um, legitimacy to this court. So let's just go after the Serbians, but yeah, no, I, I agree with the what international, you know, we need to, we need to beef up the international criminal court because they actually, we saw a successful prosecution of war criminals. Um, but pretty much the only place that that's really happened is, is, is with Serbians from 25 years ago. And so it basically, you know, it takes like, you know, a quarter of a lifetime to get to a point of justice. Um, yes. And, and it also takes a deliberate effort by players that have leverage to unplug yes. hotspots from geopolitical nightmare. Yeah. Bosnia, Croatia, Slovenia, Serbia, Montenegro, Macedonia, yeah, even yeah. Kosovo have nothing to worry about, at least for the time being. We deserve this type of architecture. I mean, the, the amount of bloodshed by Kazefi, by Assad, or by any despot, Saddam, we deserve something much more, much more elaborate than the ICTY of Yugoslavia. We didn't get that. There's one example only, a very small one. It's the Special Tribunal for Lebanon, which indicted one person, one Hezbollah operative, who's named. The Lebanese state will never be able to deliver that name, deliver that individual to The Hague. Add to that, in a case of what was meant to be a trial in absentia, the Special Tribunal for Lebanon suspended itself 
and has shut down due to budgetary constraints. So even then, this one example is gone. That will definitely dampen anyone's expectation for an international investigation into the port blast or a tribunal for the port blast or a tribunal for Assad's crimes or a tribunal period. So that I, I, I agree with you that yes, the ICTY perhaps didn't do enough. But the fact is people that were in jail died or they're in jail permanently life sentences and if they died they died either natural causes or they committed suicide milosevic died from i think if i remember correctly a stroke the bosnian croat uh, leader his name escapes me now paramilitary leader he killed himself on tv drank cyanide drank yeah, yeah. something I remember, that. I remember that and mladic and karadzic will never come out of jail why don't we have something at least at that level more people have died here more countries have suffered you need international assistance in that stuff no international assistance in telling our part of the world yeah sorry just one thing there's no needed uh uh recommendation on countries in this part of the world on how exactly they govern themselves or what exactly sectarianism means to them or for that matter what mosaic and minority rights end up looking like that's what everyone in this part of the world has to figure out on their own. That also includes accountability, reform, anti-corruption. We have to figure that stuff out. But ending violence at the regional level, we can't do it on our own. It's impossible. Neither yeah, could I, the Bosnians and neither could the Croats or the Serbs. True. No, you're not wrong. But I would add an addendum to that in that the Middle East has too much international assistance. And by, by that, I mean international interference. Too many powers are fighting out their, you know, world chess game in the Middle East. And so the Middle East becomes the battleground. Like Syria, what, what region, like, what is the reason that Russia is interested in Syria? It's a part of an international chess game for Russia. You know, why is China like trying to get in on like, well, we want contracts for reconstruction. It's it's a it's an international game of interference. And there's too many between the US, between the EU, Russia, China, Iran, fighting out their battles with each other in Lebanon, Syria, Yemen. And it's, you know, I mean, you're destroying countries because you don't because they know if they went to like head-on war with each other it it would be devastating for both countries so it's like let's just destroy this country that we don't care as much about well that's the situation that was avoided sorry sorry go ahead no go ahead go ahead ronnie please no uh and by the way i should apologize even somebody that was meant to be upstairs with me is now at the car too so she was sitting (laughs) here and I'll introduce her. Here she yeah, is. Feel, yeah, All right, right. Yeah, yeah. The more Come the merrier. Sit down, sit down. We'll, have, we'll have a party. She's a journalist in Ahlen, Lebanon. Ahlen. She could do. A, she could do a better job here. I'm gonna give sure. one of these to her. Yeah. Here. See, this is the episode. You get a car and an extra guest. Hi. Hello. Hi. Hello. <laughs> Sorry for the mess. 
Well, you have to give her a proper introduction. She is Tala Ramadan. She's a journalist at Lorient today. Hello. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Welcome. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> no, like no, it's we're glad to have party. you. I, I like how this is working. <laughs> no electricity. <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 think, I think we should always do it from cars now. <laughs> maybe that's the way to yeah, do it. Yeah, maybe I'm like in solidarity. I go and sit in my car. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great, actually. Yeah. If I had a car, I'd sit. <laughs> By the way, is it the 40-minute marker? Isn't it coming up? Actually, I got a message. Uh, it, it said that um, they suspended the 40-minute thing. So oh, as long good. as it doesn't okay. shut off, yeah, we're good. good. I'll, I'll, okay, if, great. if it shuts off, we'll know. Okay, excellent. <laughs> Sorry, I, 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 the last part of the question, I, I interrupted you guys. Sorry, I don't no, no, go ahead, please. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, and I think maybe you have the added uh, feature of somebody who may disagree, maybe. I, I think that is the one key ingredient that we need. I think everything else we're capable of doing. And I agree with Khalid, other Khalid. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's no need to keep assisting for the sake of it if that assistance doesn't get you to a better place. I completely agree. And interference for the wrong reasons you want to avoid altogether. Yeah. But the architecture that can neutralize war from this part of the world, I think we're in desperate need. And if those tools were available here, I wouldn't say that. But the Lebanese, and I'm going to make it a very local example, the Lebanese cannot inspect their port. The Lebanese state cannot turn away weapons-grade ammonium nitrate. The Lebanese regime is incapable of dislodging the state from a battlefield situation. So that's something that Lebanese cannot do. That's the kind of stuff that you need some international leverage, not for the wrong reasons, but for the right reasons. Yeah, not military interference, but... Uh assistance and 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 aid just and, and like just like the americans and the soviets did not fight each other in austria uh -huh. they agreed to leave austria alone austria's constitution people don't care about it because it's such a boring story but it's boring for the right reasons yeah it's called well, the treaty of switzerland Europe. but switzerland exactly switzerland self-imposed uh -huh. austria could have been a country torn apart by the cold war Austria could have had the same fate as Germany, could have been divided, but it wasn't. The Americans and the Soviets agreed to leave that country out of regional war. It's called the Treaty of Neutrality, and it mm -hmm. kept Austria out of the Cold War. And Austria is that one country, if you look at a map of the Iron Wall, Austria seems to be more Iron Wall geographically than the Czech Republic. It's further east in areas, yet it was a neutral country. Finland had the same situation, guaranteed to not be part of regional war. These are European examples. The Balkans post-1995 have an international arrangement that ensures it. And I'll make it even more relevant. There's household names that we remember as, as kids, but we don't think of anymore. The IRA is no longer part of anyone's story. The Irish Republican Army was disarmed. Not disarmed by the Northern Irish inhabitants making that happen it's the good friday accords 
that's an international agreement that ensures ensures that this will never happen again. Democracy no. will. Shin uh, Shin Fein is the goal. Hezbollah's Shin Fein recreation is the goal too. Not to get yeah. rid of it, not to make it, but to make it part of your future. Not holding on to the worst aspects of its past. However, not not to not to. Like you're right, except for the fact that uh, Brexit, it there is a looming specter that we're going to have Northern Irish um, resistance. If you have a hard border between the rest of the UK and Northern Ireland, there there was already, um, I think it was early two thousand, late two thousand eighteen or early two thousand nineteen. There was a there was an explosion. Uh, some uh, terrorist attack. The the Irish situation could become a situation again as a result of Brexit, because it's going to make a hard border between the rest of between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Those those examples aside, the rare occasions that one one attack, and for that matter, the one attack in Sarajevo mm. in, the, in recent decades. Those exceptions aside, yeah. the chances of it spilling out of control into chaos and uncertainty again is very slim to none. Yeah, I don't think very that m- yeah. many people in Northern Ireland want a return. Like it may, it, like you might see an event like that. Like Ronnie said, it's an exception or exceptional. It but, is ex- but and, and but the thing is, I think that once once a people have had peace and stability after seeing so much conflict and bloodshed, it's very hard to get them to go back to that, um, unless this, the 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 political system just falls apart and and doesn't allow for uh, doesn't allow for that stability to continue. Yeah, um, and, and it depends think, on how how Brexit plays out. Right, but even with Brexit, it's like all right, you know. It, it's it's a terrible upheaval, I guess, if you want to call it, or or, or shift, structural or shift. retarded uh, kind of. <laughs> yeah, but 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 you know what? Move. But but you know what? Hey, that's I mean, going back to what we were saying about democracy, it's an idea. It's being tested. It it might might be reversed one day. Who knows? But. But I think that people prefer the peaceful route of, of dealing with these with these problems rather than resorting to violence. It's and so, that neither of the countries that have experienced repercussions or have been directly involved, whether it's the UK or on the other side, the Republic of Ireland, they have no leverage anymore, and they cannot contribute in a negative way. To the future of Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland inhabitants that once supported the IRA will not support the IRA again, in the way that they understood it before. They have a po- they have a politics that is largely peaceful, not entirely, and I don't think there's any example of a purely peaceful form of the politics that we desire, but they're closer to there than we are, and that's Northern Ireland. And that's technically United Kingdom. So that's a very clean example. Even in the ones that were far more violent, they're figuring their way forward. And ETA in Basque, Northern Spain, is gone. 
the Basque population is not seeking violence or supporting it anymore either. Colombia, this famed FARC guerrilla force, yeah. is on its way out gradually, mm. but not to the detriment of, it, it's not something that is being violently pushed against where you're going to have a massive upswell against it. It's a politics that is fairly, fairly moderate they, and they seems seem to, to be working. They, yeah, they seem to be fatigued and, you know, they're not being militarily eradicated, but they seem to be fatigued with conflict. And I think, I think and, and, most yeah. populations in the world, if you give them the, the choice of a peaceful solution, they'll take it. Um, I would take this moment to uh, uh, hear from our, our new uh, pop-in guest. Hello. <laughs> I feel like I'm an intruder, so hey, I'm trying to... You're not an intruder. You're a welcome no, guest. No, please. <laughs> You're, 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 everyone's and, welcome. You're a welcome guest. And now, now, now for the actual intelligence and the sophistication. <laughs> yeah, we need. Hey, you know, I mean, it's it's been it's been all dudes, so it's nice to have a, a you know a female voice involved also. So if we can, uh, if you have some some uh, some things to say about uh, international conflict in Lebanon, we are willing to listen. I mean, I'm sure I know everyone said it, said it all, but like, I, I agree with the fact that you said that we need this kind of uh, intervention from abroad when it comes to investigations because we cannot do it alone. And um, like just when we talk about the international community and the international world looking at Lebanon, and we just hear people saying, why aren't people doing anything? Actually, people are trying to do a lot of things and they're trying to, you know, raise their voices and amplify the needs but um we cannot do it all alone so um, i really feel like we need to have our voices amplified by the international community and uh, i don't know if you agree but um i really feel like this is the, like an urgent need for for like this in, in a kind of intervention and in, on all levels so what so how would, how would you envision this intervention like what kind of intervention would you think would be the best um like in terms of investigations especially for the blast uh trying to move things even further faster because it's gonna take us ages if we're gonna do it all alone so um if you want to have this magnified scope on um on an intervention i feel like it's going to be exclusively maybe on uh the investigation so like an so international, may, like an international tribunal. Yes, but something so, that that actually targets people and you know, something that really pulls off this entity that's uh, trying to take over. So if I if I can jump in and and um, share my opinion, I agree with the ideas that you know everyone is saying. The idea of international assistance, the right kind of international intervention. But if we're going to be, if we're going to be, um, and I don't mean to be negative, I really don't, but the, if we're going to be, in my opinion, practical and seeing just how the international community has viewed the Middle East region, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's other parts of the region, 
like the history doesn't show any real goodwill or any any examples of positive intervention if you want to call it that and so i to go back into the history a little bit i think that that the 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 reason why that is is because and we talked about this on a previous episode is uh, and when, when we say the international community, we're really talking about the West, because that is the the region that the region that that's the 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 part of the world that our region looks to for for um, solutions for guidance, and I think a lot of parts of the world, not just the uh, the Middle because East, because they have all the money. Right, they have all the power. They have all the money. Right, uh, and 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 they uh, in a lot of ways set the region up for a lot of its problems. But I think that that's, that's the, the key thing is that what is the international communities or the West's intentions towards that part of the world? And like I said before, we, we talked about this in a previous episode that we look at European colonialism and we look at imperialism and we see that now we're, we're just living a neo form of that. And what that means, wholesale warfare, countries being destroyed, resources being extracted and, and stolen from, from these countries and societies being torn apart. And so in my opinion, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a lost cause to think that we can really get any positive uh, intervention or um, any sort of positive intention from from the West when it comes to our part of the world, and I think that when we look at other regions, so we, uh, you know, you guys brought up some really good examples, whether it's uh, <clears throat> Bosnia, Serbia, and the Balkans, or or Ireland. Yeah, I mean, these are areas that saw really uh, intense conflict for long periods of time. But at one, at some point, they were left alone. It's like, all right, we we want to see an end to this conflict. It's gone on for too long. The people in this in this conflict have hurt each other enough. It doesn't suit them or the wider uh, international community for this conflict to continue. However, and and so they will, they'll go on and they'll push for uh, and, and support a diplomatic and political solution. In our part of the world, conflict is the norm. Conflict is what the international community desires, whether it's for, again, the destruction of, of countries, the, the tearing apart of societies, whether it's for the sale of weapons on a large scale, whether we're talking about reconstructing countries and you were asking, you brought up a good question about why Russia was being involved in Syria. This the other day, the Russian foreign minister said that they had tested 320 different kinds of weapons in Syria. Yeah. So it's 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 a testing ground for 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 uh, yeah for mass for mass destruction. And so uh, to 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 go on a little bit, just to to talk about also what we as as a people think about like how we view ourselves and how we view the idea of resolving our our problems 
that are in some ways imposed from the outside, in my opinion, but we've, these systems have been, have been pushed so that this corruption and uh, these problems continue to fester. And these, these tyrants and dictators in a lot of these countries are, do get a lot of support from the West. Tunisia was brought up. Tunisia was that great example of, all right, one country that may have been somewhat of a success after the Arab Spring. Yet with what happened a few days ago, the West is like, all right, well, it is what it is. It's like they want to see it fail. Right. Well, and so I, I, I completely agree. And I'll just interject here. You want anyone with leverage. Forget the countries that have no say. Any countries with leverage in malignant ways or in beneficial ways when they want to. You want them to err on the right side of history. You don't want them to prolong problems, whether it's accepting abnormal regimes and using their leverage in the region for, for what they deem to be good things on their terms, that's the story of our times. Bashar al-Assad negotiating or even having a CIA liaison with that regime is a disastrous situation. Expecting, expecting Iran to do dirty work on America's behalf as well, whether that's anti-Al-Qaeda stuff or even for that matter, using the Iranians for reasons that only serve limited American goals, that has a very huge toll on this part of the world. Add to that, at times supporting Saddam and his war against Iran, and then fighting Saddam mm -hmm. and turning Saddam into the story. These are the things that should be passed our, that should be over with. Right now in Lebanon, there's a real fear that the Syrian regime because it was preserved, will have leverage again in Lebanon. The Syrian regime will have influence that it lost, that Hezbollah took in its place, that the, that the Syrians will now take back. If the Americans, for example, are to say, well, that worked for us for 15 years, that took Lebanon off our minds, it pacified the situation, we can accept that, you'll see a Lebanon that even further erodes so that's, that's the stuff you want to see over with. Security concerns, as opposed to championing moderates and Democrats that really want the same things Americans or Westerners take for granted. So that's the stuff that should be incorporated. All the other things I agree with, yeah, you don't want the bad version of imperialism. You don't want the stuff that has damaged this part of the world. And you don't want it to be only about security. Security does have its, there are reasons to have that on the agenda, but not when it perverts and, and destroys a region and makes things more insecure. And, and you don't well, want, you don't want any refugees. I think, I you mean, I want, think, yeah. Like, honestly, I, th I think the, the, the type of Western intervention in the Middle East, if we're talking about Western intervention in the Middle East, what the region needs is mediation. Uh, which comes in in the best form comes from like the the Nordic countries because they just really have no stake in the in the thing. They're, they have no dog in the race, and you know they they're just like you get like Sweden and Norway to mediate, uh, to help out, and 
you know, a sort of an effort to invest in the things that, you know, in rebuilding and that kind of thing. Uh, like there, there's a lot of rebuilding that needs to happen. And, I agree. you know what I mean? You're not going to get aid for rebuilding from the Gulf countries unless you ideologically align yourselves with what they want. So you need, you know, uh, an impartial mediator. That's what, that's what needs to happen is impartial mediators. Uh, you don't want people that have like, you know, America has way too much interest in the region, partially because the dollar the value of the dollar is tied to the price of oil. So, you know, there's no way that America can ever be impartial. And also their, their strong connection to Israel, they will never be impartial in the region. So you need some impartial, you know, China sort of dangles the idea of being, in, you know, ideologically impartial, but also, they, um, I, I don't trust them in the long run. It seems like they're playing a long game of, you know, world domination. You want countries, you want countries with leverage to do the right thing, which is a rare occurrence. Yeah. One selling point is this part of the world has given everyone a headache. Yeah. And it has changed politics for the worse in, in many countries that are not in the region. It has made leaders ov overly concerned and even some of them waste political capital including macron who uh -huh. showed up here the day after the blast and i think felt humiliated a month later uh -huh. so you want all of these things to line up and i agree with khalid the other khalid nothing seems to be pointing in that direction unfortunately no on that not. on that note though i actually have to get my ass ready <laughs> because i have uh, another interview, which I'm a bit late to. I should have logged really? in right now. Yeah, but it's okay. I have Tala messaging saying that I'm uh, I'm running a bit late. So I unfortunately have to end. I never do this out of principle, but at nine o'clock I have another podcast. So well, I hope. Okay, but before before we leave, um, I plug your plug your podcast because you have a a very uh, successful podcast going. So it's called the Beirut Banyan, and it's at uh, 270 episodes. Uh, most of them are discussions surrounding particular topics, and most of them are Beirut-focused, but not all of them. There are some storytelling episodes that are more resembling, they resemble better the tour that you went on, Khalid, <laughs> in that it's sort of trying to share the city's history in a different way, through storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I also write a weekly column for an outlet called Now Lebanon. A new piece came out today. Tala Ramadan uh, is the hero of the moment. She's probably one of the most well-known Lebanese journalists on the scene, which is true. She's a bit embarrassed by me saying that. Uh, so I'll plug where, her where, as well. Where does her work show up? Where do we find that? I work that? at Lorient Today. Lebanon Today? Lorient Today. Well, Lorient, okay. And we're very lucky to have you. Thank you, guys. Yeah. And, and send, I appreciate send, this. send us send us links to all your stuff, and we'll post it on our page, and you know we'll share. Uh, we'll do. Yeah. Uh, and we should have you again soon, sometime. 
just to catch up and I'd be continue honored. the conversation. And, and I promise you, next time it'll be an apartment with electricity. <laughs> I mean, no, this, this was great. This, this was great. Was too long. Was too long to be a one part thing. This has to be a part of a series. So, yeah. so we next definitely time, need actually, to get you, know you on again. The chances of there being electricity are so small. I'll take you to the Corniche next time. It'll just be <laughs> an outdoor with a little tripod. <laughs> nice. nice. Thank you, guys. Okay. Thank this you. Is, this Thank has you been so a great much. conversation. Thanks a lot for being on here. Both of you. Thank you, Khaled. You guys Thank have you. a good night. Much love. You too. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Okay, bye.